Welcome to the Consummate Athlete Podcast, where we explore what it means to be a well-rounded, happy, goal-crushing athlete. Every week, myself, sports journalist Molly Herford, and cycling coach and kinesiologist Peter Glassford interview experts and chat through all of your training questions. We're excited to have you along for the ride. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Peter, how's it going? It's going well. I'm excited to be here. How are you doing? I am doing great. Yeah, I'm really excited about today's conversation, talking to Carolyn Burkholder. And I'm also really excited because we are now heading into the off-season base phase, uh, which means you are just slammed making these uh, three-month custom plans. Yeah, and I'm actually sending this email a lot right now. Is there's sort of we have our our best-selling uh, training peaks plan, which is uh, what is it called off-road base. So we'll put that link in the show notes. And so this is just a great three months of you know it's not wild training. It's not the most intense training, but it's a, a block of training that a lot of people have used, um, three months as well. Uh, but that's a great pre-made plan. And then, yeah, the three month plans are also a great option. And they're ones that, you know, if you have a little irregular schedule, you don't like to train on Sundays, you want to mix in cross training, or you only want to train indoors. The three month plans are really, you know, a unique offering that consummate athlete is really, I don't know if anyone else offers these plans. Uh, where you get three months of training that are indeed made for you. So it's your schedule, your gear, your goals, your time available. You're not trying to fit yourself into like some random sweet spot, you know, plan made for a 20 year old that can train all the time every day uh, and, you know, recover from that. Uh, it's made for you. Yeah. So you can definitely find that over at consummateathlete.com. It's, I'd say, one of the best values on the market when it comes to training, especially training based specifically on you. And I think it's a good precursor to coaching. Mm-hmm. Like if you've been contemplating wanting coaching, if you've been working on it like, you know, off of just whatever plan, you know, whatever app, whatever, uh, and you think you want to coach, but you're like not quite ready or, you know, you're more like me and you kind of prefer not a lot of communication, but you still kind of want something specifically tailored to you. This is actually a super, super rad option. So that's right. Yeah. Get your workout ideas. And and again, just the fact that it's made to your schedule, I think is, is just like the difference between a plan working. A lot of us will sign up for these plans. And then the problem is like, there's that one hitch where it's like every Sunday they tell you to ride for five hours and you're like, I have never ridden for five hours in my life. And it can just be really like, that's, it sounds odd, but that's like the reason you just stop following the plan. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, again, check that out over at consummateathlete.com and on to talking about today's guest, Carolyn Burkholder. So we are talking all about nutrition today. Carolyn's been on before. She is a registered dietitian. Uh, Her company Rooted Nutrition uh, really specializes in dealing with people with very complicated relationships with eating. Uh, She's actually going for uh, her uh, counseling degree right now because a lot of her work is in the eating disorder space Mm. uh, and in the disordered eating space. Yeah. And that'll be just such a great combination because it's hard to separate. Indeed, I don't think you can separate the the psychological aspects of, of our relationship with food, especially as athletes. Um, exactly. You know, you said as you walked out in your cycling kit the other day, just I, I you know, this is it's so odd. So, yeah. yeah. Yesterday was the first time I've ridden a bike in a few months and it's, you know, it's getting into the cold weather. So you're putting on much more of your cycling stuff. And I find in the summer shorts and a jersey fine, but it's when you're pulling on like the tights, the full length tights or the leg warmers and you're putting on like two jerseys and like the heavier one that's like a little less stretchy. Suddenly you're just like. Uh, you know, you look at yourself and you're, you know, you're basically dressed like a superhero. Mm-hmm. Like that, that's been a joke sure. I've made many times in the Shred Girls books. But suddenly you're like, oh, this is so tight. Like, not even like, oh, I've, you know, gained a lot of weight and now this is very tight. No, this is 
it's just tight. Mm. There's no hiding from your body when you ride on the road or you ride like when you're wearing, you know, standard road cycling kit. That's right. And so you can see why some people get so wrapped up in tracking mm -hmm. calories and this sort of thing. And I believe that's Carolyn uh, pushes back with this is the intuitive eating where there's there's more of a, a feel to it and, and sort of like, I, I guess, feelings are, are addressed as well. Yeah. So I loved we talked all about eating in the off season and what that should look like or what that can look like. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the nuances there, uh, you know, we talked about race weight and, you know, does it go? Should we go up and down in the off season? Is Which that... is a common question we get. Yeah. It's like, should I be gaining weight? Which yeah. I think is like looking for, you know, a permission to 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 gain weight. And I loved her answers. I thought thought they were extremely nuanced and reasonable and like still to like you could go on a very like oh no race weight has nothing to do with anything and like right terrible and what I, but we know that that's not exactly the case so we really got into these nuances of it which i really okay. appreciated cool um yeah so lots of great stuff in this episode and and we do refer like i, I think you can carolyn will we'll put her uh, contact details there. She's is available for online consultation as yeah, well. Right. So definitely. And we've, a lot of yeah. People. yeah. And definitely if you have more nutrition questions like this, you know, it's stuff that we can talk about and we do talk about, but it's always really great to have an expert. So definitely keep questions like this coming in and we will keep finding the experts to talk about it. So with that said, enjoy this conversation with Carolyn Burkholder. Before we dive in, just wanted to take one second to thank this week's sponsor, AG1. So if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know that I have been using AG1 for quite a while, going on over two years now, and they've been a longtime supporter of the show as well. But honestly, cannot recommend enough. This is the foundational nutritional supplement that just makes it so easy to know what you're getting how you're getting it, and just make sure that you're getting everything from probiotics, prebiotics, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, vitamins, minerals, you name it, all the good stuff, none of the bad. What I really care about is the fact that it is NSF certified for sport, so it's been tested, and you know that everything that's on the label is what you're getting, nothing more, nothing less. So it is just the easiest way to ensure that you are getting the nutrition you need, especially now we are in cold and flu season. So tons of immune support in there with vitamin C and zinc, and of course, magnesium and B vitamins, which are super important for those of you who are training a lot. I find magnesium is the most critical thing in my diet. Uh, and honestly, when it comes to the holiday season, it's so nice to just have this in the morning, have it as part of my morning routine and know that, okay, no matter what I'm doing, whether it's cookies, you know, for breakfast on Christmas or, uh, you know, just maybe a little overindulgent during the holidays, I know that I'm still getting in all of the good stuff. So... If you want to take ownership over your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Just go to drinkag1.com backslash mollyh. That's drinkag1.com backslash mollyh. Check it out. Welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. It is so great to be back here, Molly. It's good to see you. You too. You are one of my absolute favorite experts to talk to all the time. And as we said before we hit record here, partially because you're always willing to go with the it depends, but then offer an actual like reasonable answer. So that makes you my number one expert. You know, I think that is something that... I've gotten in the last like three to four years when I was a new dietitian, I was polarized about everything because 
I knew so little that I always felt like I needed to defend against the notion that I might not know. And oh my gosh, I love it. You know, they say the, the further from the shore, the deeper the ocean. Like now I have this very solid understanding that there's a lot that I do not know. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that. Okay. Is there anything that comes to mind that you were dead set on when you first started out that you have since like shifted on? Oh gosh. Yeah. Things I've changed my mind on. I feel like I have a pretty concrete list of things I've changed my mind on, but I think the main thing that I have evolved on since being, you know, a first, second year dietitian has been actually the willingness to change my mind on something. Mm-hmm. Like, I like that. Yeah. I think we are taught as dietitians to be very dogmatic about food first, food only, no supplements. And as I've distanced myself from, you know, being in the more, in the academic and I guess, you know, slightly more dogmatic frame of mind, I've learned like, if you're not changing your mind, you're not following research. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. especially a field as dynamic as nutrition and a field that's as difficult to operationalize, you know, study-wise mm-hmm. in nutrition, the speed at which your opinions are going to be uprooted is is pretty significant. So I would say if there's anything I've changed my mind on, it is actually the ability to say that actually was once a strong conviction I held that now I, I don't know so much about. There's certain things that like, I don't know what to make sense of. Like seed oils is one of them. The research is really conflicting. Artificial sweeteners. I, I can't say for sure one way or another, if I recommend them, it, there's, Mm -hmm. it's, there's too much complicating evidence. So evidence and like confounding factors where you're like, okay, well, what are we trading the artificial sweetener for? And like, what is the context? There's so many of these things where, yeah, you can't just have the headline. That's like all artificial sweeteners bad. There are just so many, yeah. Confounding factors and caveats. So yeah. I'm so glad we're starting from this place. I used to be really solidly camped in the pro artificial sweeteners camp. I'm just saying, you know, from a physiologic perspective, they're safe as long as you're consuming them in reasonable balance. But now with what's coming out about their impact on the gut microbiome, Mm -hmm. like we know they're probably not carcinogenic at reasonable amounts, but I'm like, we don't know enough about the gut microbiome to be sure if Mm -hmm. not having an impact. So yeah. I say that to say I've just become a lot less convicted about a lot of things. Which I think makes sense, even given your your slant towards intuitive eating. And, you know, if anyone who didn't didn't listen to past episodes with you should definitely go back and listen because we get way more into exactly what intuitive eating entails. But I think that prop like leaning into that probably gives you a lot more nuance and and a bit more like openness to, you know, different things, I guess. Yeah, you really start to understand the impact that context has. Mm-hmm. And okay, right now, you know, we talked about this before we hit record. You're also doing a new program now where you're actually, you're studying too. So do you want to just kind of like quickly touch on that? So you have your RD, you're already doing the dietitian thing, but you're really adding more of like the 
the uh, the mindset piece in a very real way here. Yes. So, so I'm a dietitian. I practice as a dietitian. I specialize in eating disorders and I work in private practice, but I'm also in year three of three for uh, a clinical mental health counseling program. So working towards my licensure as a psychotherapist, in addition to being a dietitian. Um, Cause you didn't, just... ha- you didn't have enough letters after your name as it was, <laughs> you know, the letters, they really are deceiving. More letters does not mean more, more knowledge, but yes, in the pursuit of more letters. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, the, the line between dietitian and psychotherapist in eating disorders is already kind of blurred, but, and I'm sure if, you know, anyone working in the field is listening to this, they can understand you do start to brush up against the scope uh, between one to the other. There's the Venn diagram overlap is already pretty big, but you can also kind of sometimes bleed into someone else's terrain. Um, so yeah, I guess it was at this point, two and a half years ago, I decided to just go ahead and get the other licensure so I could kind of do both. Um, I think so that makes a lot of sense. I mean, even even outside of like the clinical eating disorders, we ha- it's impossible to argue that like eating and how we choose to eat and you know how we approach food, especially as athletes with our own hangups about it, like it's so intrinsically linked to to mental health and to our thought process, and it's all so internalized. Like, yeah, I can't serves- like there's no one that's just like ah yes, food is fuel, and that's the oh, like. I only go with the perfectly science-based approach and don't ever think about it or crave anything or want anything or have any opinions toward, like, not a thing. Yeah, the everyday nature of food really makes it so that it it has a function outside of fuel. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of the questions that we got for you really lead into the off season and things around like racing weight and how to, how to approach kind of eating. And I, I hesitate to say like eating over the holidays because that's not really it, but it is getting to the off season and athletes trying to think about like how to kind of balance that, like all of the different things of like racing weight and carb cycling and, you know, should I be doing this when I'm not training and how do I approach this in, in a healthy way? Um, Mm -hmm. So I guess the first like kind of broad, the broadest way to ask this question is for athletes who are now in like their off season, Mm -hmm. how should they be approaching intuitive eating? Are there any like shifts that they would be making from how they're thinking about eating while they're training? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. So I don't want to say it depends because you know that. But it depends. <laughs> but I would say, first of all, what caliber of athlete are we looking at? I if think let's say we're talking like most of our audience is like recreational, but serious. So we are talking like recreational. Yeah, elite, exactly. You might say. Exactly. Okay. So my first question to answer your question would be, how would you respond to a little bit tighter of a pattern when you are in season and looser of a pattern when you're out of season? I think it's really helpful for a lot of athletes to conceptualize the off season as a time of just kind of general letting go, not just with food. 
Mm-hmm. You know, we can unfortunately only maintain such immense structure for a limited amount of time. And I think part of the letting go in the off season probably just brings food with it. Like you're probably going to be more likely to meet your friends at a brewery or to go out to dinner or Mm -hmm. to actually go to the birthday dinner. And I, you know, in the ideal world, I think there's an argument for being able to do that in the on season and the off season, but I absolutely think it can be really helpful for people to see the off season as a time of being able to loosen up a little. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I see at least a lot of cyclists doing is actually using the off season to bulk up a little bit. They start going to the gym, which is going to increase your like need for calories and decrease your need quite so tight about them. And then they kind of include a period as their season is ramping up again, where they maybe lean out a little bit. Yeah. Oh, see, I love that because I think often we hear off season and we're really thinking about like tour de France level pros who are really taking like, you know, six weeks or whatever, like off where they're like genuinely like putting on like 10 pounds and it's not muscle. It's just that they're Mm -hmm. actually like, they're just going hard. They're eating everything. And that's what we think of when we think of the off season. But I love this point about like, you could also be thinking about bulking up in terms of muscle and using that time in the gym, which we all know is like healthy from like a longevity perspective and like injury prevention perspective and all of that. And that makes like still gives you the time to hit the brewery and have that like less structured, less stressful thing. So Mm -hmm. you can have the best of both worlds. Yeah. And if your off season is looking a little bit more like it's an overcorrection now we're indulging in everything and it, there's a very rebellious feel to it. Mm. That would actually be a sign that your on season might not be sustainable. So if you have a really big reactionary response in the off season, that is maybe a good indicator that like we're already too tight. You know, if you think about a rubber band, mm-hmm. we stretched it, we stretched it and then it, rebounds really quickly yeah if you're finding yourself like I mean with a massive overcorrection where you are you know gaining a ton of weight you're noticing a major drop in your energy a major shift in the way you feel in your body in the off season that is probably going to tell you something about how you conduct yourself during the season and you need to think about places you can loosen up just a little bit in the season mm-hmm. to make that reaction a little less extreme. Yeah, I I love that. So we really shouldn't be thinking about the pendulum doing this like huge swing. We should be thinking about like maybe it's just moving like a few degrees. Yeah, we want the range to be not narrow, but we don't want it to be a huge range in behavior from one season to the other. Mm-hmm. Because just from a, you know, from a longevity perspective, it's it's also behaviorally speaking, um not healthy to be engaging in such different eating patterns one time yeah. to another, just from a like insulin response perspective and right. way that you're able to effectively metabolize and mobilize glucose. 
Um, it's yeah. actually difficult for your body to adjust like to two really, really different periods of eating patterns. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be much more adaptive to have that window closed just a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, even like practically and like habit wise speaking, like every year it shouldn't like have to feel like such a a push to get back to eating for in season. Um, Mm -hmm. There's, I, I will admit, I also personally hold the fear that uh, there's going to come a time where I just won't go back to eating for the, uh, the hibernation forever. Just done. I, I do often say that, like, I tend to not really take much of an off season. Like I take time off as needed, but I don't really love having like a full off season because I'm genuinely concerned that I'll be like, oh, wow, it's really nice having all this free time. I should just, why am I wasting all my time running this much? This is ridiculous. If you show yourself the, uh, the other side, you might never want to go back. As a former non-athlete, like I am well aware that for the first 20 years of my life, this was not a fat, like athletics was not a thing. Like I know how good, how good I had it back then. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's an interesting perspective. I think that also really um, gives weight to the argument of people having specific off-season sports. So Mm -hmm. I know a lot of I know a lot. I know about three to four cyclists who like really get into things like climbing in the off season because it's a totally different type of sport. It is conducive to short, short days. It's something that you can see measurable progress for. So you can get kind of excited about it, but it's not just grinding, you know, on and off every day on the trainer, Mm -hmm. the way that you would probably have to be doing if you were maintaining that. So you're staying active, but you're staying active in a very different way, in a way that's also rewarding in a different way than, yeah. you know, getting a new power best, personal yeah. best of power. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Now, this is, a, now we're going to kind of get a little more nuanced here. Race weight is something that, you know, has been talked about for decades. Um mm-hmm. And I think we, I remember, you know, books have come out called Racing Weight. And mm-hmm. there always used to be sort of this assumption that everyone has that like race weight and like mm-hmm. everyone will fluctuate throughout the year, whether you're a top pro or you're, you know, recreational athlete. What's, what is your take on sort of like, is there a race weight? Like, do we need to maintain it? Do we need to maintain it all year? Should we go up and down all year, especially as like, say like, aging recreational athletes so let's (laughs) let's talk towards like the 40 plus crowd here gosh molly i was hoping you wouldn't ask me this because this is actually one that i have gone back on back and forth on even maybe since the last time we did a podcast (laughs) because it's one of the trickiest questions i don't know yeah so let me tell you a little bit more about why i don't know Mm -hmm. i think that would also be another question where it's like, what are you needing to do to maintain your weight, race weight? How easy is it to maintain? Some people have kind of a natural five, uh, we'll say three to 5% of their body weight shift from when they're really actively training, high training load, very careful about their nutrition to when they're not. 
And some people, it's actually not a super effortful difference. I mean, yes, there is more effort that goes into just like there's more effort that goes into being on the on season, mm-hmm. but it's almost a natural pattern that just follows the seasons of your training. Sure. That, the the way that that can come naturally to some people makes me say, yes, when you're training at this volume, your body is probably more likely to be comfortable at this weight. Mm-hmm. And also if you can kind of get to that slightly higher weight and be comfortable with it and know, okay, this is just kind of a part of the seasons of my training. I, I see no reason to be concerned about that. And that probably the fact that it comes so naturally to someone makes me think those are probably great weights considering where someone is in their training. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that more natural fluctuation. And I think a lot of people who would naturally fall into that probably aren't even necessarily getting on the scale and even like really Mm -hmm. noticing it. It's probably more of, to use the phrase intuitive, (laughs) just more like notice all of a sudden one day, like, oh, my pants are looser. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. It's May. And the last time I wore these was February. Exactly. Yeah. Um, But the, the scale is actually something I did want to bring up because I mean, to me, like I'll say like, I haven't been on a scale in years mm-hmm. um, because I, I just understand that my, with like who I am, there's just never going to be a number where I look at it and I'm like, nailed it. Yes. I'm always going to have a feeling about it. So mm-hmm. my response is I just don't do it. And I feel great about that. Um, and there are those people who weight is going to be fraught for them forever. And the outcome of seeing their weight is almost always going to end in compensatory behaviors, dissatisfaction with their training and their eating. And to those people, I say, it sounds like you already know the answer is that this isn't going to be adaptive for you. Yeah. And to me, that's not even, that's not even a question of like, should you maintain race weight for X, Y, Z? To me, that's just like race weight should not exist for you. Like, yeah, we could maybe call it race pants fit, um, (laughs) like race cycling kit fit, Um, or even like able to do my intervals. That's probably a really important starting place. Able to do the time in 10 minutes versus 11. But yeah, you know, I think another place that race weight gets really tricky, especially when we are talking about our lovely elite amateur crowd, and especially those in their 40s, 50s kind of entering a new physiologic stage is chasing a race weight that is from a past stage of life. Yes. I will say my dad is 65 now and he's still like, he is no longer an like super active athlete. He's active, but he's not like a recreational, but like he will still talk about his race weight from when he was like 25. Correct. That is, That's not the race weight anymore. That is still in his head as like, that would be the weight he would want to get to. And I, mm-hmm. I mean, A, I just don't think that's ever happening, but B, yeah. like, not even really the right weight for you anymore, even if we were really like going for it. Yeah. Well, and it's so funny, like as you get older, especially when you enter your fifth decade, you know, your 40s and your sixth decade, your 50s, you have to think so much about what can I do to keep myself from losing lean tissue? 
the deterioration is so, so much faster, unfortunately, when we cross that threshold, even, I mean, even thirties, that's when it starts to happen. I forget the metric, but it's like one to 2% a year. If you're not actively taking measures to prevent it. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes pursuing a, a race weight from, you know, a previous season of life comes at the expense of that lean tissue, which you're already fighting an uphill battle to maintain. So especially people in their, you know, in their fifties or so, I say, if you're going to prioritize anything related to body composition, I would say it's how much can we put effort on maintaining the muscle that you have? And, you know, if possible building it, because as you get older, I mean, the amount of lean tissue you have is directly related to your functionality over the lifespan. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like, let's be honest, cyclists are not really known for our massive amounts of uh, big muscles here. So it becomes, I think, even more important because you already don't have that much muscle mass to lose. So those minutes, like those percentages are a big deal. Yes. And if you are, you know, eating in a pretty significant deficit in pursuit of this weight, that's probably below your set point. The thing that you're going to lose is probably going to be muscle at that Hmm. point, at that age. And so that's another thing that gets really dangerous. We also see people that, you know, even in their twenties, their weight, when they're in college, able to train a lot more walking around campus just living a generally more active lifestyle by nature of what they do every day is different than when they start a desk job. And of course there are interventions you can use. You can, you know, add in more steps, you can get a treadmill desk, whatever. A lot of times their weight is just going to be a little different with those different lifestyle factors. Mm -hmm. And chasing that weight is probably actually going to end in like a you know, reduction of your metabolic rate, loss of lean tissue, things like that. If you're working really, really hard to pursue a certain weight and it's not happening, it might actually just be too low. Yes. A hundred percent. And this is, you know, we often get the, like the question around like power to weight ratio, you know, everyone wants to drop the weight number to make the power to weight ratio go up. And we're like, but what if you, what if you just raise the power? And that's what, you know, we've been told this, you know, so many of like the top coaches are like, that's where they want to focus is like the raise the power, the weight will sort of sort itself out as you're in that pursuit uh, without losing muscle mass in the process. Yeah. It's especially when you're, you know, thinking about a race weight, like what weight am I typically at when I'm pretty much hitting all of my workouts, when I'm getting mm-hmm. a period for men, when I like actually have a sex drive, when I have like, you know, there are signs that our androgens are lower and mm-hmm. I mean, God, how many athletes do we hear on podcasts talking about like, Oh God. Then I realized like my testosterone was at like, you know, a hundred. Um, yep because they're maintaining these insanely low weights and insanely high volumes. Yeah, Um, exactly. And it's like only a couple of years later that they, they realize that that wasn't a sustainable thing. And like, certainly for our master's athletes out there, that is not a sustainable thing. That is not the way you want to live. Just not great. (laughs) I often think about our last conversation on this podcast and 
we were talking about if you're a stocky sprinter, you also maybe just aren't going to win the hill climb. There it is. Your physiology just might not cater to that. And that's okay. The hill climber is probably not going to beat you in a sprint. Correct. Correct. This is very much the play to your strengths thing. Because, yeah, I mean, I think, honestly, probably more so for the recreational amateurs here versus the pros. The pros, you have a coach or a team or whoever that's putting you into the box that you should be in. Like, you're a sprinter. We're going to have you do this in the race. But I think, you know, rec- like us, like elite recreational amateurs, we'll call it. Uh, we kind of feel like, officers. yeah, yeah. We sort of feel like we need to be everything and able to do everything, even though that's irrational. If you actually well, look at like, there. yeah, exactly. Like we are not all all arounders. I'm sorry. We are not all Matthew Vanderpool. We are not all Cassie and Nubidama. Like, sorry. Yeah. There's a reason there's only, you know, two or three of those in the world at a given time. Exactly. Yeah. So I think, you know, as a a recreational athlete, kind of figuring out where your strengths are and actually leaning into those is probably a really smart thing to to do. And probably something that a lot of us don't think about because we tend to think in terms of like which race we want to do rather than like which race we might like perform really well at. And then we pick the race we want to do and expect that we're going to be able to perform really well at it, even if it's not at all the race that's like designed for our strengths. Correct. Yeah. And I think people get really, really caught up in like, you know, becoming good at this other discipline they've never been good at. And that's great. I think Mm -hmm. that can really add a lot of vitality to your racing is, you know, adding variety. But if you're not a pro and your livelihood isn't on the line, it's okay if you don't win. 100%. Yeah. (laughs) oh my gosh I love it I love it um okay so sort of shifting back to the the more like off-season eating patterns and stuff what's your take on like the off-season a couple of the questions we got are like you know is the off-season a good time to like do carb cycling or you know is the off-season a good time to try xyz diet what are your thoughts on on that I mean first I guess like more the general question of like is the off season a good time to experiment with the diet? Yes, that actually, you know, it's funny. I would think my knee jerk reaction would be no, that sounds stupid. But actually the off season is when the stakes are lowest. Mm-hmm. So, you know, every now and then I'll see someone who just does phenomenally, sorry, phenomenally on, you know, a keto diet. I don't see them often, but every now and then I see them, right? Yeah. And when you aren't on the hook to be, you know, racing well, executing specific workouts, if it is going to challenge you metabolically, which any new eating pattern will, at least at the beginning, it's going to put you through a level of physiologic stress. The off season would be the time where you have the, the most wiggle room. The thing I will say is because because the stakes are low, you're not actually getting an opportunity to trial it, but you can always, you know, build in some kind of simulation. Hmm. Um, But I mean, as a rule of thumb, like if you're trying anything new, when you're not either competing or having kind of a 
highly important workout is going to be the time that you're going to want to trial it. And I will say like the off season, especially if you're taking two, three months between racing periods, maybe more for some people, um, that's probably going to be your biggest block of time where mm-hmm. you're not going to be at risk for, you know, messing up one of your races with GI distress, um, or just, you know, general feelings of malaise that can follow major nutrition shifts. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I would, I would say that would actually probably be your, your best time to do it. Yeah. Although we might want to caveat that and say, I think, I think I'm like a hundred percent agree, but with maybe like not an exception, but like a caveat that your whole off season shouldn't be like a miserable pursuit of a new <laughs> diet that feels like as aggressive as when you're in training, like, cause yeah, we do want to finish the off season feeling like recovered and good. So there's probably <laughs> like a, make sure that like, you don't want to murder everyone around you on the keto diet. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. or it's, that you're ruining it's... Christmas for everyone. Yeah. Christmas is canceled for keto diet. Yeah. yeah that's a really good point. You know, and there are some people that are less affected by not just what they eat, but like by their relationship with food. Like I see people every now and then I'm like, I think you really have a very neutral relationship with food and I respect you. Um, I don't understand it, but I respect it. Correct. Yeah. Like it's, it's almost like seeing, you know, an alien and being like, I don't really understand, but I, but okay. I don't deny that you exist. Exactly. Um, <laughs> So for people like that, I would, you know, the off season is going to be a great time to to play. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess you, you make a really good point. If it's going to be a Herculean effort to try whatever this new eating pattern is, you don't want to get to your season depleted. Mm-hmm. So I suppose you would want to be kind of intentional about where you're placing that in the off season. And also being open to maybe hitting the, the bailout switch yes. is, is miserable. So, you know, if you've done it for two weeks and it's just like really not working for you, then, okay, this is actually going to make my off season awful. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to maintain this. Mm-hmm. So looking at everything through an experimental lens, I'm going to see how this goes, but also, you know, stop doing it if it's not working. Exactly. Yeah. Rather than becoming like religious about it and saying like, this is my new way of life. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Probably help well. Which I mean, we, we know that's sort of the way nutrition seems to have been going in the last few years is a very dogmatic, like you have to have an approach instead of just like food. <laughs> Crazy. You know, there was a period where I actually didn't tell people, especially like in group ride settings when, you know, what do you do? What's your story? I didn't tell them I was a dietitian, especially once I started my psychotherapy program, I told them I was a therapist, which then I learned was also not a good thing to tell anyone because then they want to tell you about their dreams. And yeah. Yeah. Let me tell you about my mother and uh... right, exactly their disturbances. But (laughs) the reason why I am often thoughtful about who I share them a dietitian with is because it is such a pool of dogma and people do get very religious and like their identity gets very wrapped up in the way they eat. And I mean, again, understandably why it's a very easy thing to cling onto and the everyday nature of it. But 
I mean, wow, it's, it's often a sign when someone feels really, really strongly about their eating patterns that it might be defending against something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. And last thing on the off season is we are coming up on the holidays. Like, again, it feels very cringy to talk about it, but I think this is like an important thing. Um, and, you know, you're often talking to people and athletes who have, you know, very complicated relationships with food. We have a lot of people listening to this who, you know, whether they're, you know, not eating gluten or they're vegan or, you know, X, Y, Z, any number of things, the holidays are just like a fraught time. Any tips for navigating these challenging moments with friends and family uh, while enjoying yourself? (laughs) I don't have tips for navigating family in the holidays. (laughs) Specifically though. Yeah. No, the holidays, they are, they are fraught. They're also just, they take people out of their routines and yeah. if you are a routine based person. It, it is challenging in the holidays. If you can stay as close to doing what you're already doing and then adding whatever the extra thing is, um, kind of as a part of what you already normally do. So let me give you an example on that. Cause that sounded very vague. So like if it's Thanksgiving, uh, a lot of people just don't eat up until the meal and then binge and then feel awful and then, you know, restrict the next day. And, you know, yep. part of my brain is like, it's one day. It doesn't actually really matter that much. However, if we're thinking about Thanksgiving as a representation of like other food based holidays, yeah, eat the way you normally would leading up to the meal, right? Like have breakfast. If you tend to go for a run and then have a recovery shake after and then eat lunch at 12, like do that too your Thanksgiving meal actually won't end up looking that different from like your normal, you know, protein, starch, veggies meal. You're just Mm going to have some extra things and some slightly more indulgent things, but the structure of your day really doesn't need to look that different. Like, yes, you can still certainly indulge in whatever the dessert is that you like and whatever the sides are that you like, but they really can still fit into the normal structure. And I say that not to say don't indulge on the holidays, but to say like, it doesn't need to be a super different day that you need to make a lot of accommodations for. Yeah. Yeah. Things that do work for you. Like a lot of people think one thing that really works for them is like not really letting themselves get super, super hungry. If you're finding that that works really well for you in your everyday life, you should also, I recommend doing that on the holiday and the birthday and all of that too. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, from a family perspective, like it's a lot harder to tolerate your family when you're vulnerable via low blood sugar, high cortisol, I like to tell clients, like things are like 20 to 30% harder when you're hungry. And that applies to enmeshed family gatherings 100 percent, yeah workouts family gatherings like it's yeah. all much harder when you're hungry yeah you're gonna be in a you know better setup for success if you're not just kind of already on the edge and already activated by that just like generally depleted state yeah yeah absolutely it is funny. We always do think of like Thanksgiving as being this like ultimately like like utterly indulgent holiday. But if you you're exactly right. If you actually think about what's on your plate, you're like, oh, green beans, mashed potatoes, turkey. Like yeah. 
some stuffing. Like it's really not that big of a deal. Like I think it doesn't need to be. Yeah. Um, You know, same with, you know, people talk about holiday parties. It's like, yeah, okay. You are going to be indulging more, but the lot, like the broader pattern of your eating doesn't actually need to change that much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is there anything you're seeing these days that's like currently in the the like zeitgeist, I guess is the word. Like the one thing I've been noticing a lot lately is like the the discussions around like alcohol and drinking and stuff like that actually have been coming up a lot more. Are you seeing that in like within like dietitian culture too? How does that play in? You know, I see it a lot in like when I work as a psychotherapist, like under my training. Mm-hmm. You know, alcohol and Alcohol, its long-term effects and the amount of alcohol that can affect like your long-term health, that's actually something I will be a little bit more opinionated about is I often tell people like, if you're going to make one sweeping change, not drinking would actually probably be what you get the most bang for your buck on. Um, It's funny, like, the the recommendation like one standard drink a day for women two for men is actually also the threshold that they use to study like for excessive drinking right yeah and actually canada like a almost a year ago now put out their new recommendation that's for like men and women it's like zero to one is okay like one to two is like a little less okay three to six is like moderate drinking and six and up is unhealthy like mm-hmm. no matter who you are yeah per week not per day if i didn't say that the research on drinking and the effects of abstaining from drinking is pretty compelling mm-hmm. and pretty hard to ignore and i think that actually is something that really rubs people the wrong way because they that is something that brings up a lot of defensiveness for people but mindful drinking, like, am I drinking this wine because I want to, or because it's habitual, that is actually worth, I think, a second look. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. And actually we've been noticing more and more non-alcoholic drinks are coming out on the market, like tons more non-alcoholic beers. We were just in mm-hmm. Quebec and they literally had an entire aisle in the grocery store that was actually all non-alcoholic like beer and mocktails and like fake like like faux gin and like wild it's even in like so I live in Knoxville so I don't live in a very big city but in bigger cities like I know Atlanta where I'm originally from there's a lot of uh non-alcoholic bars starting Mm -hmm. to come up which tells me the market is responding to consumer demand um I, I think that is becoming more popular and also just you know there's a higher demand for people seeking therapy. And a lot of people are starting to see, like, I get super fucking anxious, like after drinking, like it makes it way, way, way worse. Um, So that's that I actually will spend some time talking to people about, like, if you're open to considering it, at least reducing your intake could be really great for like your long-term risk of colon cancer, your long-term risk of breast cancer, exactly, um, your long-term yeah. risk of dementia. That one, it's it's a pretty big lever to pull if you're willing to pull it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that's always worth a discussion because I think we almost separate that from diet. 
which is like kind of bizarre to me because for a lot of people that actually is a big chunk of their like quote extra calories and like or discretionary calories we'll say Um, but for some reason we we tend to not really put the two together it's like your diet's over here and then alcohol sort of in this other compartment Uh because I think you're right it's such a like hot button topic for people because because there's way more judgment with it right like if you say to someone like you should stop drinking or like you should consider stopping drinking it feels like more of a um like a moral judgment almost than anything about food it brings up something for people when you say you don't drink. So I don't actually drink. And when I say I don't, if I am asked, people get a little, like their hat clothes go up about it in some situations. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's interesting, you know, (laughs) one of my favorite things to rant about is people that are really moralistic about what they do and don't eat. And how, you know, eating certain foods and additives is you know, morally reprehensible, but then engage quite regularly in drinking. Yep. Yeah. For some reason, the translation gets, yeah, very lost. Yeah. Like people who don't eat any processed foods or anything like that, or like are very like anti-sugar or et cetera. But then, yeah, no problem drinking. Um, mm-hmm. Makes makes very little sense to me. Um so I think we really do need to kind of like keep these together and just like realize that it's all part of the whole, like, and mm-hmm. you know, I drink moderately. I'm not like a complete abstinence person. Um, but yeah, it's something that I think about a lot and I've actually been so excited with like all of the new, like non-alcoholic beers and stuff. Cause I think going back to the holidays and the dealing with family and stuff, like I would much rather have like mostly non-alcoholic drinks with my family because like, I don't need the second it nothing good is going to happen with a second glass of wine at a family event, really. <laughs> uh, and non-alcoholic drinks take the burden off of explaining yourself to people as much. Yep. Um, or, you know, same with like having a fizzy water with a lime and pretending like it's vodka soda. Like 100%. It, it, it really makes it easier if you're not trying to get into that conversation in a group setting. Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. Shifting topics entirely, although it does deal with a drink. Um, a couple rapid fire questions as we sort of like come to a close here. Uh, one question someone had is actually like, do you need a recovery drink if you have a reg- if you're having a regular meal after training? The drink yeah. just is what caught me on that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'll try to be as rapid fire as possible. Um, so the benefit of recovery drink is the convenience, you know, if you're, especially if you're elsewhere from your house riding or whatever other exercise people do the meal will serve the exact same purpose um if Hmm. if you can make the meal that's absolutely going to be sufficient the reason recovery drinks are as popular as they are is just when people don't have time Mm -hmm. to like construct that meal yeah within like a reasonable amount of time I will say like if you're you know if you're finishing your workout at five and you're probably not going to have like dinner ready until like 7 38 recovery drink is gonna you're gonna want to do that just because that's a pretty long period of time between ending the workout and starting the meal yeah. but as long as the meal is gonna be like ready in an hour um I then yeah there's you're not gonna be getting one over the other mm-hmm. as long as that meal is you know featuring the same things that the drink does complex carbs and complete protein 
Yeah, absolutely. No, I completely agree. And I mean, I think the other kind of nuance to this is recovery drinks aren't cheap. So in terms of like dollar saving, I think it makes sense to like recognize that they are not like a necessity after your workout if you can have a meal instead. No, you are. There is certainly a premium for the the convenience and the processing and all of that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, some people prefer solid food. Like some people just the consistency of the recovery drinks just doesn't like they really don't like that. Yeah. I tend to look at them as like emergency only, like I'm perfectly willing to have them, but it's uh-huh. more, I really like food and Same. I'm going to be really sad if I don't have it. So yeah. yeah. Recovery drinks are your best friend. If you're like, um, you know, doing a gravel ride far away from your house and it's kind of remote and you can keep it in your car with a bottle of water and mix it up right there exactly, until yeah. you can like get to food. That's going to be like, really, I would say where they shine. Or again, if you're someone that like food preparation is really bothersome to you, then like to that, I say the recovery drink is going to be a great uh, way to simplify that. Mm -hmm. But it, you know, from a nutrition composition standpoint, like it's, you know, the recovery drink is not going to be better than a well-constructed complete meal. Yes, absolutely. Perfect. Okay. Another question we got was around anti-inflammatory foods. And this one was interesting to me because I keep remembering a couple of years ago, there was like this big push to like not eat a lot of anti-inflammatory stuff after workouts because it was going to like take away from, you know, the, the recovery process. So no blueberries was really the upshot of that. And I was like, Oh no, all I did, like literally the first thing I do when I finish a workout is put my giant bowl of blueberries in the microwave. And I'm not actually kidding. Wow, Molly, you are sabotaging yourself. I know, I know. <laughs> so that would be a question of potency. So the potency of anti-inflammatory foods would not be high enough to, uh, I guess, attenuate the anti-inflammatory process. Yeah. So I can still have my blueberries, my Greek yogurt when I finish a workout. You can do that. And yeah, if that's like, if that's your biggest concern with nutrition, like you are doing really well. Um, Yeah. Anti-inflammatory foods are actually, I, I, you know, the research is nascent, but it, I think there's some pretty good research that they're actually very good for recovery too. So yeah. I also figure like, you know, this question was like, you know, anti-inflammatory foods, like, are they worth thinking about from, you know, from the sake of your diet? And I'm like, I mean, to me, I say yes, because anti-inflammatory foods are just by and large, like fruits and vegetables and generally healthy in other ways too. Correct. Yeah. There's like a couple, there's a couple foods that jump to mind that I would say like, um, maybe outshine in the anti-inflammatory category. So like, um, really, really brightly colored fruits. So like blueberries, raspberries, pomegranates, things like that. I mean, those are going to be like slightly more, you know, turmeric is actually fairly well researched as being, you know, good anti-inflammatory chia seeds, things like that. Um, But if you're eating a diet that is rich in colorful foods, then by nature, you're going to also be getting a diet rich in anti-inflammatory compounds. Um, I would say the, the, a really simple way to think about it is the brighter, the color, the more concentrated it's going to be in like, um, like the micronutrients that do have anti-inflammatory benefits, but Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, thinking about eating a really healthy diet is going to also be thinking about eating an anti-inflammatory diet. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You're not really going to go wrong there. (laughs) 
Right. Exactly. Uh, uh, unless you have a race the next day and your dinner is a giant, giant, giant bowl of brightly colored. Yeah. Just all blueberries. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess I should asterisk like the generally healthy diet is very different when you're about to race. Yeah, then exactly. Becomes, like, where are the refined carbohydrates? Because that's going to be your, your best bet. Yeah. Yeah. Being an athlete is so weird. That's really what I've come to from all of this, where it's like, you know, whenever we say the phrase healthy diet, you kind of really have to contextualize what is the scenario in which this diet yeah, is healthy. There's between training, there's during training and there's before training mm-hmm. and, you know, the, the guidelines for health are pretty wildly different in those three buckets. Exactly. Exactly. People should go back and listen to our past episode with you to hear more on that because we definitely have gotten into that before. But before we wrap up, tell everyone where they can find you, follow you, and keep up with all the things. Okay, so my name's Caroline Burkholder. You can Google my name. That's probably where you'll find my website, uh, Rooted Nutrition Counseling. Sorry, Rooted Nutrition and Counseling.com. I'm on Instagram, but like sparingly. Um, My handle is root underscore ed nutrition um and yeah that's that's pretty much my internet presence love it love it awesome well carolyn thank you so much for having such a lovely nuanced it depends ish conversation with me as always i very much enjoyed it yes it's always great to be here thanks so much for tuning into the consummate athlete podcast if you want to hear more training, racing, and endurance sport advice, make sure you subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. You can also subscribe to our newsletter at consummateathlete.com for a weekly dose of inspiration and advice straight to your inbox. 